0: Good. All right. So, if you want to open up to two places in your Bible, uh, the book of Acts chapter 17 and First Thessalonians chapter three. If you want to get two places, Acts chapter 17. And for those of you tuning in or just joining us, we are going through uh, the books of the Bible, one book at a time. It's a study that started uh, many moons ago. I think, I guess, how many weeks? This is my 67th lesson. So over a year ago, we started this. Lord willing, this year, if the rapture doesn't happen, we'll finish it. But if the rapture happens and interrupts our study, I'd be very okay with that. But, um, so we're on First Thessalonians. Many years ago, I think when we were first going into lockdown and the church was much smaller and very few of you were around, uh, we, we did a study of First Thessalonians and broke it down in more detail uh, so if you want like the more in-depth, you could find that on our YouTube channel or on our website, I believe, and uh, you're welcome to indulge in a more chunk-by-chunk, phrase-by-phrase, like subject-by-subject. Subject. took us many months to go through 1 Thessalonians, but I'm going to try to do it now in just one night, uh, just to give you an overview of the book and pull out some essential truths in it. So this, as your sheet says, there's five chapters, there's 89 verses, there's a little over 1,800 words. The author is Paul. He says it's Paul in his letter. Uh, He's writing from Corinth to Thessalonica, uh, approximately 53, 54 AD. This is actually one of the earliest, if not the earliest, of Paul's letters. Um, Thessalonica is a port city on the Aegean Sea. It's in modern-day Greece. Uh, there is a church in Deland, Florida, James Knox's church. I think they have a ministry. They had, were sending people, I don't know if they're still doing it, but they were sending people to Thessalonica. I think they were calling it Project Thessalonica. They were trying to reestablish a church in Thessalonica, Greece, uh, which, is a, which is a cool idea. Uh, but if you look in Acts chapter 17, verse 1, the church was planted during Paul's second missionary journey. Acts 17, 1, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis, and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where it was a synagogue of the Jews. So Paul is on this second journey, as his manner was. He's journeying through a town and he starts preaching, and some people get saved. You see verse 2 and 3, people start getting saved. And uh, Paul, if you look at verse number 2, only spends about three weeks there. I mean, less than a month, right? Verse 2. And Paul, as his manner was, went in unto them, and three Sabbath days, three weeks reasoned with them out of the scriptures all right so for three weeks Paul is preaching his heart out and he leaves now if you jump over to 1st Thessalonians chapter 3 you get the uh the context here 1st Thessalonians chapter 3 1st Thessalonians chapter 3 uh 1st Thessalonians 3 verse number 6 Paul writes this he sends Timothy to Thessalonica to see how they're doing and Timothy returns and gives Paul the report. I'm ringing. I'm ringing. He gives Paul the report, and that's where we get our letter from. So look at 3.6. It says, uh, But now, when Timotheus came from you unto us and brought us good tidings of your faith and charity, and that they have good remembrance of us always, desiring greatly to see us as we are also to see you. Look at verse number 1. Wherefore, when we could no longer forbear, we thought it good to be left at Athens alone and sent Timotheus, our brother and minister of God and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ to establish you and to comfort you concerning your faith. So Paul sent Timothy. Paul's in Athens. He sends Timothy to Thessalonica. Timothy gets the report, brings it back to Paul, and then Paul writes this letter and sends them greetings. And as you read the letter... Paul is so cheered by the report of their faith and growth. I mean, it's exciting. He's only been there a few weeks. A small church is established. He leaves and he gets this report back from Timothy that their faith is growing exceedingly. That's exciting. When you see, it's, we see a lot of people. We see a good amount of people call on the Lord, say the gum in the church. But when somebody actually gets saved and then gets plugged in and starts growing and starts getting discipled and starts lending a hand, and you know what that is? That's exciting. And Paul is like, wow, I'm getting this report that you guys are really getting into it. You're really believing. You're really taking steps of faith. And Paul's cheered by that. He, he, he commends them for that. But Paul also wants to help them a little bit. He wants to correct some views concerning the Lord's coming. Because he gets word from them that they got that doctrine a little bit messed up. Look at chapter 4. Let me show you what some of the bad ideas were that they had. Look across the page. One bad idea is in verse 13. But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren. That's one of seven things the Bible says you shouldn't be ignorant of. That's a good study. But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep that ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. So, some of them were sorrowing because they thought that those that had died in Christ would miss the Lord's coming. They were like afraid that the people that died before the rapture were somehow going to miss out on something involved in the rapture. So Paul's just comforting them, saying, listen, don't sorrow. The people that are dead in Christ, they're not going to miss anything. That's the first thing he corrects. The second thing he corrects is verse 11. And that you study to be quiet and to do your own business, and to work with your own hands, as we commanded you, that ye may walk honestly toward them that are without, and that ye may have lack of nothing. Some people had ceased to work in light of his coming. They were using it as a cop-out to say, well, the Lord's coming back, you know, I'm just going to just stop working and everything like that. And that's not the way to be. Look, I know we talk a lot about the Lord coming back. That doesn't mean you stop everything you're doing. Right. I'm not quitting my job tomorrow, though in about an hour or so I'm really gonna want to. Right. I'm not quitting my job tomorrow. Right. We're not, you know, mortgaging all of our houses and just like putting all our money in a in a pot somewhere and just staring up at the sky. No, we've still gotta live, we've still gotta raise kids, we've still gotta buy groceries, we still gotta mow our lawns in a few months, right? We still got to do the things of life. I know those things have to still happen. So Paul's like, hey, don't be a lazy bum. Don't be a loafer. Don't use the Lord's coming as an excuse to just sit back and just like chillax. No, the Bible says keep working, keep being diligent, all right? Now look at at chapter one, right? Now this young church, even though, oh, I'm sorry, look at, go back to chapter four and look at verse 15. I want to miss a verse there, missed a verse there. Look at Paul says, he says, For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord. I want you to understand that the teaching regarding the Lord's coming for his church was revealed through Paul to the church. Like this was not understood, this thing about a rapture, a gathering, the Lord coming back for his bride. Like this was not understood until Paul got this revelation and reveals it to him. He says, we say this unto you by the word of the Lord. He's like, I'm giving you some revelation now that God has given to me. So it's very important that we always keep Paul as a central figure in our understanding of the Bible. Now go to chapter one, even though I'm just giving you some overview here, um, even though this young church had a few errors, generally Paul was commending them. You see, verse one verse chapter one, verse six, he says, Ye became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction, with joy of the Holy Ghost, so that ye were ensamples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia." So he says, wow, you know, you guys are becoming a great example and a pattern or a model for others to follow. I mean, that, that's, a, that's a commendation, right? Um, so that means, that says some things about this book to me. He says, number one, it's a great book for any young believer or young church to follow, right? If you want to find out, when somebody first gets saved, you know what you want to do? I like to point them to 1 Thessalonians because that's the book that, that's the book that, God wrote to a young church. So I say, wow, if I'm a young believer, that's a good book to dive into. The things that Paul told them, those foundational truths, are things that we need to glean and get away from it. It's a great book for any young believer and young church to follow. And for you, if you want to get back to basics, if you want to get a sure foundation in your faith, it's a great book for you to get that foundation. 1 Thessalonians has some foundational truths in them. Keywords, look on your sheet. Coming, that pops up four times. Uh, brethren, pops up 16 times. That's pretty good. Look at the key verses. Look at verse 9. There's a great little outline in verse 9. For they themselves show of us what mannering of entering in we had unto you and how ye turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven whom He raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us, From the wrath to come. I want you to notice the three tenses of the believer in that verse past, present, and future. You wanna see your past? Verse number nine. Ye turned to God from idols. That was your past, right? At some point in the past, if you got saved, you turned to God. From all your dumb ideas that you were following, all your dumb idols, all those thoughts you worshipped about how to get to heaven, who God was, how you were such a good person, somehow God got a hold of you and you turned from that to Jesus Christ to be your Savior and to take you out of that darkness into His marvelous light. Amen. Was that anybody? I remember when that happened. You know what that is? Look at verse three. That's the work of faith. He says, "Remembering without ceasing your work of faith." The work of faith is how you turn to God from idols. That's what faith does. Faith makes you turn from stupid and turn to the Savior. It makes you turn from the wrong ideas and turn to the good ideas, right? That's what faith does for you. Now he says, your work of faith and your labor of love. Look at verse number nine. He says, you turn to God from idols. That's your past. You know what your present is? To serve the living and true God. That's what you're supposed to be doing right now. That's the saint's present. That's verse number three. That's the labor of love. You turned, and now you're laboring. You turned, and now you're striving. You turned, and now you're serving. That's the labor of love, to turn to God from idols, to serve the living and true God. I hope that's your present. That's supposed to be my present. And now verse three, he says, and the patience of hope. You know what the patience of hope is? It's right there in verse number 10 and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. Your future is to wait for his son from heaven. That's the patience of hope, that we're waiting for the Lord to come back, hopefully very soon. Right, Adriana? Very soon, all right? That's a joke between the two of us, all Right Now, the key message of the book, and I, don't, I, I forgot my markers, so I want to pretend like I wrote it up there. Uh, the coming of the Lord for his people. That's what the whole book is about. This is the book of the rapture. This is the book about the second coming for his bride. This is the book of us. It's the book that gives hope for his people because the blessed hope is part of it is that he's coming back for you. That's part of that blessed hope. Now, the coming of the Lord is mentioned 21 times. In his two epistles to this church, he writes 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians. Eight chapters. He mentions the coming of the Lord. I'm getting Italian. He mentions the coming of the Lord 21 times in eight little chapters. That's a lot. You know, this is the book of the rapture, right? This is the book that tells us about the rapture. Do you realize what book comes before it? the book of Colossians who's supposed to be said to the Laodiceans. The Laodicean church is the last church in the church age and that's the church that's addressed right before first Thessalonians where he talks about the rapture. So and first Thessalonians is the seventh and final church that Paul addresses. Seven is the number of completion. It's over right here. The rapture is right here. The rapture is the end of the church age coming soon to a city near you and it's 1 Thessalonians typifies that. You got to not only know what's in the books, you got to know why they're in the order that they are. Because the Bible is in a unique order, right? Because uh, Romans is written later than Thessalonians. So how come Romans is earlier, right? God is ordering the books in such a way that they yield these little nuggets for you that you can enjoy sitting here in 2024. You could say, wow, what is that? Oh, marker, all right? Um, Now I have a marker, all right? Look at that. Hallelujah. Thank you, son, all right? You got a gold star, all right? I won't charge you rent this month. I'm only kidding, all right? So those are some things to remember. Now I can start writing. I'm going to go crazy. So um, the Lord Jesus Christ is portrayed as the coming one. That's his picture. So on your book, on your sheet, you see the breakdown, right? If the book is all about the Lord's coming and that's supposed to give you hope, right? Then you see in chapter one, it's an inspiring hope for the young convert. You see in chapter two, it's an encouraging hope for the faithful servant. You see in chapter three, it's a purifying hope. For the believer you see in chapter four it's a comforting hope for the bereaved and the grieving and the heart-stricken and in chapter five it's a rousing hope it's supposed to wake up the sleepy christian right so we're going to look at three big ideas three bible pictures i should say in this book all right so let's go to chapter one we're right there we should be number one the first big idea or the first big truth that i see in this book that we have to get is that from the start Because this book is about to a young church. So whatever he's saying to a young church is stuff we're supposed to get early in our Christian walk. Got me? From the start, the believer has to understand the conflict he's going to face in his new life. The Thessalonians were a young church, but they were a church facing opposition nonetheless facing awful persecution, facing difficulty, trial, and tribulation. Just go with me to a few verses. Look at 6, 1-6. I talk way too fast, sorry. He says, Ye became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction. It wasn't easy for them to believe. They were receiving the word and getting saved despite much affliction. Look at chapter 2. Look at verse 14. Two fourteen. He says, for ye brethren became followers of the churches of God, which in Judea are in Christ Jesus. For ye also have suffered like things of your own countrymen, even as they have of the Jews. He says, ye also have suffered. He says, your Jewish brethren suffered things from the Jews and you're in a primarily Gentile area and they're not making it any easier on you either. You guys are taking your lumps too. Ye have also suffered. Look at chapter three. Look at verse three. He says, no man should be moved by these afflictions, plural, afflictions, plural, for yourselves know that we are appointed thereunto. So chapter 1, he said, much affliction. Chapter 2, he said, they suffered. Chapter 3, he said, you've been enduring afflictions, plural, not just one. Chapter 3, verse 4, for verily when we were with you, we told you before that we should suffer tribulation even as it came to pass, and ye know. So they're suffering tribulation. They're suffering sorrow. They're suffering difficulty. They're suffering all this heartache. And then chapter, uh, go to to the second book. Go to 2 Thessalonians 2. Same group of people. Chapter 1. Look at verse 4. You there say amen. All right, let me know you're awake. All right, so that we ourselves glory in you in the churches of God, for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that ye endure, which is a manifest token of the righteous judgment of God that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which ye also suffer. Seeing it is a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you. They were enduring persecution, they were suffering, they faced trouble. Wow. That's a lot for this little church. Imagine that. Imagine it the first month after you got saved, the hammer got dropped on you. Some of you lived that. Some of you lived that. You got saved and your parents didn't smile. Your parents threatened to disown you. Your parents flipped out on you. right? I used to go out and do stupid things and then I got saved and I'd come home from working at the mall, eat my bowl of cereal and watch reruns on WPIX and I read my Bible and went to sleep and my mom got more livid and more crazy about the fact that I used to sit there and go to work and live a decent honest life and one time I said mom why are you so mad at me when I was out like a junkyard dog you didn't care and now you're flipping out about the fact that I got baptized and I'm going to church and for a half a second I think she was thinking and then it passed and she she got crazy again right it's amazing because if you're living a Christian life, you're trying to do a halfway decent thing, you're trying to be a good neighbor, you're trying to be a good employee, you're trying to be a good daughter, you're trying to be a good friend, and people are still hating you for it. And sometimes you're just like looking for the hidden camera. Like, am I, am I on a TV show somewhere? Is this the Truman Show? Like, what's going on? Hey, it's a reminder that this world is not your home. Because they're not mad at you. They're mad at the one that lives inside of you. Right? Now, what's the doctrinal takeaway? The doctrinal takeaway is this. There is more persecution before the rapture than any other time in church history. The first century was rough. I don't think I would like to have lived as a Christian in the first century. I mean, the Colosseum, the racks... The Iron Maidens, the hot pliers pulling your skin off, your babies being fed to hogs. I mean, there were some rough things going on back then, the Middle Ages. There were some rough things going on back then at the hand of religious people, what they did to the Waldensians and the Albigensians and the Paulicians and the Donatists and many of the other Bible believing groups in Europe were tortured and hunted like dogs. But now, you don't know because you live in America. But Now, I was going to bring it, and I forgot to bring it. I got a map of persecution in the world, and most of the world is covered. Most of Asia, most of Africa, bleeding into parts of Europe, even parts of Mexico now, there is severe persecution and hostile persecution where you could lose your livelihood or lose your life for professing the things that you say you believe every day. You walked in here with your Bible under your arm, right out there in broad daylight, didn't think twice about it. You can't do that in Cambodia. You can't do that in Nigeria. You can't do that in, uh, in Thailand. You can't do that in parts of Eastern Europe, like the Ubekistans and Turkmenistans. You can't do that in parts of Chiapas, Mexico. You can't do that if you want to. I mean, you could do it if you want a one-way, a one-way ticket to heaven. And there's more now than there was then. That's why Paul said at the end of Colossians, remember my bonds, because there would be a lot of persecution before the Lord came back, right? And there's a lot of persecution now. Look into organizations like Voice of the Martyrs and the World Watch List. Just just keep your nose, just dip your finger in that water a little bit and see how much is going on. There's a lot going on. It doesn't make the news. It's not a big deal to anybody but God's people and God. But there's a lot going on. There's a lot of people. I mean, people getting killed, people getting imprisoned, people disappearing. It's happening every day, all the time, all over the world. All over the world, globally. But, you know, it doesn't make the news because it's not, you know, somebody with an ice cream cone. So uh, let's keep going. Um, Look at, uh, now practically, what do we take away from this? Practically, you better understand early that this world is against your Savior. He told a young church, this is what you're appointed to. That is contrary to the modern gospel. The modern gospel is, God loves you. God loves you. I've got a wonderful plan for your life. I won't lean over. Right? That's the modern gospel. You're going to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. And Paul, the apostle, died sick, alone, and in a jail cell. Getting ready to get his head cut off. Right? That's the apostle Paul. And he's telling the church early, guys... This is what's gonna happen. It's gonna be rough. The world's gonna be against you. You know, if um, the carpenters know that, if you are gonna sand something and you go against the grain, it's rough. And you go against the grain, you know what it produces? Friction and heat when you go against the grain. And when you will go against the world, it's gonna produce friction. It's gonna produce heat. If you decide tonight, I'm going to just live godly in this godless world. Just that decision will produce friction in your life. You're not looking for it. None of us are sadists. Nobody enjoyed getting punched in the face, metaphorically or physically. We don't want that. We want to get along with people. The Bible says, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. But sometimes, brother, they don't want to live peaceably with you. They want to bust your chops. They want to get under your skin. They want to see you stumble. They want to watch you fall so they can say, ha ha, I thought you were a Christian. Right, they want to say that. Right, that's because you're going against the grain. God says, don't be surprised by this. All that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. 2 Timothy 3.12. So he's telling them, get that lesson early, kids. Get it early. Here's the second big thing. Understand the conflict and understand his coming, right? The second big truth in this book is the fact that the Lord is coming, right? The Christian has to grasp the coming of Christ early in his walk with God. It's so important. It's so fundamental that every chapter of First Thessalonians mentions his coming. Every single chapter mentions his coming. I'll show you. Go to chapter 1 again. 1 Thessalonians 1, right? Look at verse 10 again. He said, uh, what's this wire? this wire? He says, first, there we, there we go. Move that wire over. First, he says in verse 10, and we are to wait for his son from heaven. So the first thing he's supposed to do, chapter one, is he's supposed to wait for his coming. You know why you're waiting for his coming? Because you are a servant. And a servant is supposed to wait on his master. Wait on the Lord. Be of good courage, and he shall strengthen thine heart. You're supposed to be a waiter. That doesn't mean you're supposed to be passively just staring at the sky. You're supposed to be attending upon the Lord. Like a waiter stands in the restaurant and wait, you need some more water. Can I get you something else? That's supposed to how it's supposed to be with the Lord. Hey Lord, until you come, let me occupy, until you come and wait. Look at chapter two. Every chapter mentions his coming and a different aspect of his coming. Look at chapter 2. Look at verse 19. The Bible says, What is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming. Paul's saying, I gave you guys the gospel. You got saved. And when I get there up in heaven, I'm going to see all of you. You're going to be my reward. You know what the second thing we're supposed to do is? We're supposed to witness for his coming. You know why? Because you're a sower. The sower sows the word. He sprinkles the seed. That's what you're supposed to be doing in this little interim called time. You're supposed to be sowing the word with your lips and with your life. Sow the word. Preach the word. A sower. Go to chapter 3. Look at verse 11. Chapter 3, verse 11. Now God himself and our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way unto you and our Lord Jesus, uh, and the Lord make you to increase and abound in love one toward another and toward all men, even as we do toward you. To the end, he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. The third thing we're supposed to do there, he's saying, I want you guys to get some things right, be unblameable. We're supposed to wash for his coming. Get some stuff cleaned up, brethren. Wash up, right? You're supposed to be a saint. You know what a saint is? A saint is a sanctified one. A saint is a person that God has made holy. So he says, hey, I want you to get yourself to be a little bit unblameable. You know what you get yourself unblamable. Wash up. Don't track your muddy feet all over the house. Wash up. Clean up so you don't make a mess of things. We're supposed to wash for his coming. You understand? Hey, He's a holy God. He's coming back. Like, I'm looking at all you. You know how I'm looking at all you? That's how you're going to be looking at the Savior one day. Like, real. Like, like, legit. Like, facts. Like, no cap. Like, whatever the thing is we got to say now. Whatever we say. That's, that's what what's Right now, you, the way you're looking at me, you're going to be eyeball to eyeball with the Holy One of Israel. I mean, that should put the fear of God in you. That be, maybe I need to stop cursing at my wife. Maybe I need to stop, you know, taking something from work. Maybe I need to stop with all this anger. Maybe I need to stop with all this covetousness. Maybe just stop with all this, this, this envy and stuff like that. Maybe I need to just check myself before I wreck myself. So wash for His coming. Amen. Chapter 4, look at verse 16. Then He says this, and these are the great verses. For the Lord Himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Woo! That's great verses. But you know what chapter 4 is really all about? Look at verse 1. Furthermore, then, we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus, that as ye have received of us how ye ought to walk and to please God, so ye would abound more and more. You know what he's saying here? You're supposed to walk for His coming because you know why you're a sojourner you're a traveler you're just a passing through so make sure you're walking the right way because one day you're getting out of here the chapter ends with you getting out of here but nobody likes to read the first 15 verses that all talk about how you're supposed to live before you get out of here right look at verse, uh, verse 12 he says that ye may walk honestly To them that are without, that's the lost, and that you may have lack of nothing, right? He says, I want you to walk the right way. A sojourner is a traveler, someone who's just a passing through. Look at verse three, for this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that you should abstain from fornication, that every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor, not in the lust of concupiscence, even as the gentiles which know not god he's saying guys if you're just a passing through don't put your ten stakes in too deep stop living like everybody else you're supposed to be a peculiar people you're supposed to be different it's okay if they call you weird you should count it a badge of honor you should hear the clink of the reward in your treasure chest in heaven Every time they make fun of you for the cause of Christ. Every time they ostracize you. Every time they put you out of their company. Don't let it get you down. Let it lift you up because, wow, I just got some rewards. That's why those disciples could get beaten and walk out and say, oh, man, we, got, he, we could count ourselves worthy. We got to suffer for his name. I don't understand all that, but I guess that's what it is. They could hear the clink of the rewards getting dropped into their, their treasure chest in heaven. Right? It's okay to be different because God said you are different. And then chapter 5, verse 5. You're all the children of light. Amen? I hope so. Right? And the children of the day. Notice that this whole thing goes back to Genesis 1. This whole Bible is about light versus dark, day versus night. You're a child of the day, a child of the light. We are not of the night, nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep, as do others, but let us watch and be sober. For they that sleep, sleep in the night. And they that be drunken, are drunken in the night. But let us, who are of the day, be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for an helmet, the hope of salvation. For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with Him. Last thing you're supposed to do, is you're supposed to Watch for his coming. You know why? Because you're a soldier. You're a watchman on the wall. You're a guardian. You're a keeper. You're supposed to be like those guardians, those keepers, those soldiers on the walls of Israel, keeping watch by night, not sleeping like everybody else is sleeping, but keeping watch to make sure the enemy doesn't invade. We need some watchmen. We need some guys. You need to watch your walk. You need to watch your children. You need to watch your spouses. You need to watch your families. You need to watch out for your church. If we had a bunch of watchmen in here, the enemy couldn't sneak in and get anything. But most of God's people are asleep. (laughs) And they're asleep, and the enemy's just walking out with all the goods. He's got all the joy, all the peace, all the strength, because we're just asleep, and the enemy walks in and gets whatever he wants. We're supposed to be soldiers who are watchmen on the wall, right? Now, That's a pretty big deal. That's every single chapter is about something about His coming. If God makes that big of a deal of it, shouldn't we be making a big deal of it? How big of a deal is the second coming of Christ for you in your life? It's a big deal in God's book. I don't know how big of a deal it is in my life. But I'm supposed to be waiting, witnessing, washing, walking, and watching in light of His coming. And the third big truth they're all C's. Conflict, coming, and the third one is comfort. You know, despite the conflict, the Lord wants to know of His coming. Why? So we can experience His comfort. That's like the message of the book. It talks a lot about comfort. The young church needed comfort. Amidst all they were going through, they were taking their lumps. So Paul's like, "Well, i got to give you some comfort, some strength, some help." Look at First Thessalonians chapter two. Look at verse seven. He says, uh, "But we were gentle among you, even as a nurse cherisheth her children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were willing to have parted unto you, not the gospel of God only." but also our own souls because ye were dear unto us. Notice first, Paul likens himself to a nurse. (laughs) Yes. Right, Nurse Adler? Right, likens himself to a nurse. Like, uh, you know what the nurse does? The nurse, the nurse cherishes. Kind of like a mom. You know? Nursing you back to health. You know, dad goes to work and mom makes the chicken soup and like nurses you back to health. Right? Then he says in verse number 10, are witnesses and God also, how holily and justly and unblameably we behaved ourselves among you that believe, as ye you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father doth his children, that you would walk worthy of God, who hath called you unto his kingdom, salvation and glory, that's reward. So notice he says, first I was like a nurse, and then Paul alludes, to being like a father. And the father charges. That's what dad does, right? Dad kind of says, get up, son. Come on, get up. Let's go again. Let's try again, son. Let's go. Come on, you can do it. Come on, get up. Wipe wipe the snot away from your eyes. Get up, let's go, let's go, let's go. That's the father. So that is some really practical advice for parenting in my mind. I get to learn about the roles of mom and dad from that passage. I found out that a mom primarily is there to cherish the children, nourish the children, kind of like bind up those wounds, help kind of comfort the children. Dad is there to kind of provoke them, exhort them, help them get going, that they might walk worthy. That's practical advice. It tells me about the roles of mother and father according to the scripture. It also gives me some practical advice. Uh, the Bible says, bring them up, Ephesians 6, in the nurture End admonition of the Lord, right? Nurture is like that nurse, that mom. Admonition is like that father. Come on, son. That's wrong. That's right. Let's go. That's dad, right? We need some dads to be like that. Not insensitive, not cruel, but the dad sometimes has to be like, come on, get up. Come on, get up. Let's go. Let's go again. Let's do it again. And mom, you're going to run to mom when you skin your knees. And then once the knees are, the band-aids on, dad's like, let's go back outside and try again. Mom and dad right, two sides there, nurture and admonition, but it's also practical advice for strengthening believers, right, if you're going to deal with another believer and try to shepherd somebody, disciple somebody, you got to be both of those things, you can't just be mom and always, oh, you'll be all right, it's okay, if you're all just like that, you're going to raise a snowflake for Christ, and if you're all a drill sergeant, then you're going to be like raising an insensitive brute for Christ. You need both. There's times you've got to cry with that person. There's times you got to be like, all right, let's go street preaching together with that person. Right? You need both. you got to let the... Paul said, I was both to you. I was a nurse. Oh, it's going to be all right. I know it hurts. It's going to be okay, brother. God loves you. And sometimes it's like, come on, let's live holy. Let's go on for God. You've got to be both those things to people. That's practical advice. Now go to Genesis chapter 5. Yep, Genesis. Genesis chapter 5. You need to cherish God's people and charge God's people. That's what Paul did to the Thessalonians. Now, we need comfort. Amen? Amen. Christians need comfort if they're going to walk with God in a wicked world. All right? You could act tough and act numb but you know as well as I do, you need comfort. You need God to strengthen you. You need God to help you. You need God to encourage you because it's a world that wants to discourage you. It's a world that wants to knock you back, knock you down. Why? To just get you to give up. If you just give up, you can still go to heaven, but you're not going to take anybody else with you. Amen. So we just the devil just wants to get you to give up. The world just wants you to give up. Throw in the towel, give up, shut your mouth, cry in your beer, and just... Stay there in the the room till the rapture happens. The devil may not get your soul, but he can get your life, your family, your joy, your peace, and your victory, and he'll count that as a win, right? So that's how he's rolling here. So we need comfort. We need strength, okay. First mention of comfort is in Genesis 5. It's in verse 28. And Lamech lived 182 years and begat a son, and he called his name Noah, saying, This same shall comfort us concerning our work and toil of our hands because of the ground which the Lord hath cursed. First mention of comfort was given before the flood. A type of the great tribulation. That's what the flood was. Noah's name meant comfort. He said, man, we're working, we're toiling, we need some comfort. And brethren, we are working and we're toiling in a wicked world and the tribulation's a few minutes away. You know we need comfort. You want to see the last mention of comfort? It's to the Thessalonians in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. First mention, before the flood, a type of tribulation. Last mention, given by God before what's probably going to be the great tribulation. 2 Thessalonians 2 is all about the tribulation. And at the end of the chapter in verse 16, he says this. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 16. Now, We're going to talk about this next week, the Lord willing. But 1 Thessalonians is the book of the rapture. 2 Thessalonians is the book of the revelation. 1 Thessalonians is about our gathering together unto him. 2 Thessalonians is about the Antichrist, the tribulation, and all the things that happen after we're leaving. And it's in that book that he mentions comfort the last time. In the context of the tribulation, he mentions comfort. First time, Noah, before the tribulation comes. Because the flood is a picture of the great tribulation. Last time, when the great tribulation is upon us. Comfort. Comfort. 2 Thessalonians 2, 16 and 17. Now our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God, even our Father, which hath loved us and given us everlasting consolation and hope, good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. Remember the first mention? Man, this Noah is going to comfort us concerning the work and toil of our hands last mention of comfort says hey let God comfort you in every good word and work 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 comfort work in the beginning you're working before the tribulation you're working before the flood guys God's going to comfort you here you are getting ready for the great tribulation second Thessalonians chapter 2 talks about it you know what he want God wants to give you comfort comfort for your work comfort for your work because we need comfort Thessalonians mentions comfort seven times. C-O-M-F-O-R-T. Seven letters. I don't know, it's just a coincidence. And he mentions it seven times. He mentions it six times in 1 Thessalonians, one time in 2 Thessalonians. Can I show you the ones in 1 Thessalonians? I'll show you. Go to 1 Thessalonians 3. There's a good little lesson here, good little outline about comfort. 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 1. Wherefore, when we could no longer forbear, we thought it good to be left at Athens alone and sent Timotheus, our brother and minister of God and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ to establish you and to comfort you concerning your faith. That no man should be moved by these afflictions for yourselves, know that we are appointed there too. Please notice number first. First, he says, comfort concerning... Your faith. That is the why of comfort. He says, You guys are getting beaten up. I want to comfort you concerning your faith. I want you to understand. Don't stop believing just because it looks like the sky is falling. Don't stop believing because people are evil and treating you. Don't stop believing because mom and dad, you know, kicked you out of the house. Don't stop believing because the people at work have like turned a weird shoulder towards you. I don't want to talk to you in the break room anymore. He says, I want to comfort you concerning your faith that you're not moved by these afflictions. That's why you need comfort because you're going to get afflicted if you live godly in a godless world. All right, am I preaching to anybody tonight? You're going to, live, you're going to get afflicted if you live godly in godly a godless world. So God says, number one, I want to strengthen you so you're not moved away from the hope of the gospel. Then he says, look at the next time. I mean, I love when the Bible just makes the outline for you. It's right there. Look at chapter 4. So that's the why, right? The why of comfort is concerning your faith. Let me show you the, how, the what of comfort. 4.18. He's just told them about the blessed rapture. He's just told them about the gathering together unto the Lord. And then he says in 4.18, Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. You want to say, what's the what of comfort? What gives us comfort? The words. That's the what of comfort. Why do we need comfort? Because our faith is being tried every day. What's going to give us comfort? These words. These words. If we didn't have these words, where would we be brethren? Will we be just, oh, it's going to be okay. Oh, it'll be all right. How would we know? We wouldn't know anything if we didn't have these words. And those people there, they've lost loved ones. They've died in Christ. They think they're going to miss God. They think Jesus Christ is going to come and leave them behind. He says, no, no, no. Don't sorrow. Comfort yourselves with these words. It's the words. This we say unto you by the word of the Lord. Verse 15. It's the word of God that is a comfort to us. That's the what of our comfort. But look at chapter 5. Look at verse 9. Let me show you the how. Nine. For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with Him. Wherefore, comfort yourselves together, and edify one another, even as also ye do. You want to see number three? The how of comfort. The how is together. When we get together, that's supposed—that's a, a way we comfort one another. We edify one another. The body, the iron sharpens the iron, right? The countenance sharpens the countenance of his friend. You know, I could have, you know, I, I had a decision to make. I could have just, we could have just said like, you know, I'm just going to do this lesson online tonight. I'll just sit in my house. My flesh wanted to do that. I'll just get this stuff from Eli. I'll hook the camera up and I'll sit on my couch and I'll just, you know, we'll all tune in, kick our feet up and blah, blah, blah. But you know what? My wife was more of the Holy Spirit than I am. She's like, no, no, we have to, you know, you should go somewhere. And Eli worked this out by the grace of God. Thank you, brother. You know, made the call and it worked out. And you know what? And she was right because seeing you is a comfort, it's seeing each other is a blessing, if I did this to an empty room, it might have been the same words, I might have hit the same points, I might have got myself all worked up, because I'm a hot-blooded Italian, I don't know, but you know what, really is a blessing, seeing your face, me seeing my, you seeing my face, I hope, right, seeing each other, the Bible says, you know, comfort yourselves together, this whole thing about Christianity and the life of the Christian is about together, It's good to be together. I've said it from the pulpit on Sunday. I want to make more opportunities for us just to be together, not always have to do something. but just sit down and have a bite or have a meal and talk about things. So much can happen over a cup of coffee for the cause of Christ. And sometimes, you know, if we build this great program, just an open Bible, an open heart and just an open mouth and an open mind. Man, we could do some great things if we do them together we don't do things together we're pulling at each other we're biting and devouring on each other we're not helping each other if we're tearing us down but he says edify yourselves build yourselves up when the body starts fighting itself I think they call that like autoimmune diseases or sometimes certain types of cancer the body's destroying itself right and you don't know how to stop it and you know what God says the body of Christ we're not supposed to destroy each other we're supposed to edify and build each other up we can't do that if we're not together Right? No, I know we live we live great distances. Some of us live 45 minutes away. I know Mary's like down there in like South America, right? People they're like all far away, like some of us really far away. Right? We, I get it, but the best we can, we've got to be together. And so much the more as we see the day approaching. That's what the Bible says. Neglect not, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together. Because I don't know. Something happens when I'm around my brethren. I don't feel it when I go to work. You walk into work tomorrow, come on, can I get amen? amen. They're in that lift in your spirit. <laughs> All right, brother, you're going to get out there and do a route? Oh, this is great, you know. And you're, I watched the guys this morning on Clark Avenue running the routes for sanitation. They were clicking their heels for a very different reason, right? But, you know, when you come into the church house or into somebody's home, you have dinner or fellowship or a men's meeting, and you see another brother or a sister, you know, doesn't something in you just go, ah? Oh. Something in you smiles. I don't know, that's how I feel. Something in your smiles, because that's the Holy Spirit saying, oh, there's another one of us. There's another one of the family. There's one, another one of God's children. They should be like that, I don't want to say kindred spirit, it's the Holy Spirit just binding you together. And he says, hey, that's a comfort. That's how we sharpen each other. That's the how. And then he says in verse number 14, here's the who, <laughs> not the band, the who. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly, comfort the feeble-minded you know you know who you know the who is the who i know nobody can see this but myself so i'm writing it anyway the feeble-minded is the who who needs comfort the people that are weak the people that are struggling the people that are weak and uh that's all of us at some point in our lives what's the why concerning your faith so you don't get moved by these afflictions. What's the what? The word of God. What's the how? Together. And who needs it? Everybody who's feeble-minded, little weak-minded, something little, is little faltering or failing. God says, I need to give you some comfort, some strength. So let me give you <clears throat> three big ideas, all right? Let's go back to chapter one. I'll give you three big ideas. Can I erase this? You can't see it anyway, Right. right? I'll, I'll leave it up, I'll leave it up. All right, three big ideas, all right? And then we'll close and please have coffee or donuts. I'm going to make my daughter eat all the donuts. All right. Um, first big idea from 1 Thessalonians. Number one, we need to give the brethren the truths of this book if we want them to grow. See, how do you grow a Christian? Is it a certain discipleship program? Is it a certain technique? Is it a certain meeting frequency? Is it a certain timbre in your voice? No, it's giving them The truths of the Bible. That's how Christians grow. Now, the Laodicean church is afraid of this word called doctrine. Who doctrine? We don't teach about doctrine in our church. We just share the love of Jesus. The Bible says, "Preach the word." The Bible says it's given for doctrine. And I want you to notice that the young Thessalonian church was given doctrine, doctrine, doctrine. You know what happened? They were growing. Their faith was growing. Paul was, wow, I've heard of your faith. You guys are a good example to all these other churches because they heard that their faith was growing. Why? Because Paul was giving them doctrine. Delayed to see in church? Just make it fun. Make it relevant. Make it fun. Oh, that doesn't, doctrine's not fun, Pat. The Bible didn't say it was supposed to be fun. just to learn and grow. You know what? Sometimes you know what? Sometimes the gym is not fun. I mean, you enjoy it, you like afterwards, but when that your muscles are screaming and you're going to failure and you're like, "I am going to I need a spotter. I'm going to drop this thing on my head right now." Right? And your body's aching the next day. You know what the joy is? From the gains that are coming, but there's pain there. There's pain there. And you know what? The Bible says sometimes there's pain when you grow. Amen but there's joy because something's being born and growing inside you. Lord, uh, Paul said, my little children, I travail in birth again until Christ be formed in you. That's after this age. I'm trying to grow Christ in you, and that's going to hurt sometimes, and it takes doctrine to feed that inner man in the beginning. You want to see some of the doctrines he gave this little church? Verse 4 of chapter 1, he talks to them about election. That's something most Christians have no clue about today. No clue about what election is. They think it's some grand lotto machine that God was spinning numbers and eternity past, And if he called you a number, you got saved. If He you didn't, you're going to burn. That's what people think. I'm making it sound silly, but that's what they think. They'd call me a reverend. They'd roll their eyes and storm out of here if I represented it that way. But that's what they think. They think God just spun the wheel and said, I picked you. Oh, that's just you don't understand God. No, I don't understand your false God. I get my God in the Bible, but you've invented another God with a lowercase g that is not the God of the Scripture. But he tells them they don't go five verses. He says, knowing your election of God. That's that's a deep doctrine for them to know from jump. How about verse 6? He mentions the Holy Spirit in verse 6, the Holy Ghost. Hey, a lot of Christians make a mess of the Holy Ghost. They don't know who the Holy Ghost is. They don't know what the Holy Ghost is doing. They think they got the Holy Ghost. They're so far from the Holy Ghost, they're as far as the east is from the west. If you knew who the Holy Ghost was, you know what you'd be doing? You'd be going downtown with a handful of tracks and witnessing to everybody you saw if you were really walking with the Holy Ghost, not rolling around on the floor and barking like a dog and saying you got slayed in some spirit. That ain't the Holy Spirit. (laughs) That's a spirit, but ain't the Holy Spirit. (laughs) He tells about the Holy Ghost. You know what else he tells about? Verse 1 and verse 6, he talks about the Godhead that this is a triune God that we have. My goodness, people botch that truth up. You know, they don't know what that's all about. Verse number 10 mentions the second coming of Christ. You know how, we're in chapter one, you know how often the second coming of Christ is not mentioned in modern pulpits? If we were to get every so-called evangelical church in like a 50-mile radius and see how many of them are going to mention the coming of Christ on a Sunday morning that he's going to visibly, physically, bodily return to take us physically, visibly, and literally off this earth. Let's see if it's preached. That's a doctrine. He doesn't get through the first chapter. He starts talking to them about it. That's a big... That's not when you're 50 years old in the Lord will tell you about the second coming. They're three weeks in the Lord, perhaps. A month, a few months in the Lord, perhaps. And he's telling them about it. And how about chapter four? Here's another big truth he gives them. Four, three. But this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that you should abstain from fornication. You know what he does? There's a call for holiness. That's heresy for most Christians today. That's heresy for the modern Christian. Holiness, that's like a foreign word. They do say God is holy Holy, holy. That's, if we could peel the ceiling up there and look up into heaven, you know what those seraphim are saying? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. They're reciting and recounting his holiness because that's the chief attribute of his character. He's a holy God who said, be holy for I am holy. We talk about that. Oh, that's, oh, ooh, ooh. just give me something to help my marriage. <laughs> give me something to you know, make me feel good about myself. You know, the Bible sometimes doesn't make you feel good about yourself. It makes you feel like you're very small and God's very big and I need to humble myself. So this big God wouldn't want to have anything to do with this small me. That's, that's a lot of times the Bible's like that. A call to holiness. So if your baby is malnourished, he or she won't grow right and probably deal with problems down the road. And if a baby Christian is malnourished, he won't grow right and probably have problems down the road. So look at 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6. Here's what Paul tells a pastor. Here's what Paul admonishes a preacher. Any of you guys that have any preaching you, you know what he tells them to do? Verse 6. If thou put the brethren in remembrance of these things... Thou shalt be a good minister of Jesus Christ. That's what I'd like to be. Nourished up in the words of faith and of good doctrine, whereinto thou hast attained. Right? A preacher, a pastor is supposed to feed the flock good doctrine or good food from this book. Yeah. And brothers, as long as God lets me do this, I don't know any other way to do it. Right. I am so, I have such contempt for the gimmicks and the gags and the, I just see through it. You know what? Our home church ruined me. It ruined me. Because hearing Mel Sabaca and Pat Dean and Mike Veach, I remember the first time Pat Dean preached on a Sunday morning, he ripped my proverbial face off. You know what something in me said? That felt good. That was good. Amen, amen. and, and, And nobody sits up here trying to rip anybody's face off, but the Bible rips your face off sometimes. The Bible just like pierces and gets deep down in your heart. You know what? That's good for you. It is good for me that I've been afflicted, Amen. that I might seek thy statutes. Right? It's good. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Amen. Right? But the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. That's the first big idea. Second big idea. Go to 2 Timothy chapter 4. All right, I'm hurrying here. I'm hurrying. The donuts won't melt. All right. The second coming of Christ needs to be a bigger part of all that we do. That's the, that's the second big idea. The second, I don't mean I say he's coming tomorrow, but he's coming. And the fact that he's coming needs to be a big part of how we do what we do because it gives us perspective. It gives us perspective, right? Our Lord's coming is mentioned. You want some data? I'll drop some data on you. It's mentioned 318 times in the 260 chapters of the New Testament. 318 times in 260 chapters in only the New Testament. That's one time for every 21 verses. That's a big deal. The Lord's, mentioned, the Lord's coming is mentioned in every chapter in the book we just studied tonight. It's a big deal that you get early in your Christian life, like these brethren had to get it early. How can we profess to be a Bible church and not make much of what the Bible's all about? The Bible's all about, from Matthew to Revelation and everywhere else, it's all about the second coming of Christ. That's the theme of the Bible. That's the climax of the Bible. That's the key point of all the Bible. We talked about it in discipleship too on Saturday. That's the main idea of the Bible. It's the coming of Jesus Christ for his kingdom. If we're in line with the Bible, how can we not talk about that? Make decisions based on that. Think about our future in light of that. Right, it's got to be a big part. 2 Timothy 4.6, Paul is in a jail cell, and he says this. He says, For I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them also that love His appearing. Paul says, I'm getting a reward from Jesus Christ because I'm looking forward to Him coming. And you can have a crown. Why? Because you live your life in light of His coming. Doesn't mean you give everything up. Doesn't mean you don't have a picnic or play basketball or go to the movies. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying, The modus operandi, the grand scheme of things, the the thing on your lens is that, wow, Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. i got to live my life tomorrow in light of the fact that Jesus is coming. i got to make decisions about what I do or don't do with my children in light of the fact that Jesus is coming very soon one day. i got to decide as a church, what do we do and not do? What do we invest and not invest in? Because you know what? Jesus is coming, and we're going to have to give an account of what we did with what he gave us. That's got to be like my all-in-all. All. It was their all-in-all. All. It's the Bible's all-in-all. All. i got to make it my all-in-all all. or off I'm, I'm off kilter. I'm off focus if I'm not where God is. And Paul says, hey, anybody that's loving that appearing, you've got a crown. You know why? Because you'll live your life the right way if you're looking for him every day. And then lastly, 1 Thessalonians 4. Last big idea. And they're all, they're all kind of together, these ideas. Number one, we got to give brethren the truth. Number two, we've got to make the second coming a bigger part of our lives. And number three, the doctrine of the second coming needs to affect our deeds. We need to talk about it, yes, but it's got to change the way we live and act. It's got to affect us or else it's just being puffed up. If you could tell me on the chart, you know, okay, here the tribulation starts here and it's going up and we're coming down. That's wonderful. That's great. tickles your ears but is it affecting the way you live? 1 Thessalonians 4. We often think of the book of 1 Thessalonians as the book of the rapture, right? It's the book of the rapture. But do you know what the center verse of the book is? The dead center verses of the book are 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 1 and 2. And they're all about how you're supposed to walk. Furthermore, then we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus, that as you have received of us how we ought to walk, and to please God so you would abound more and more for you know what commandments we gave you by the Lord Jesus. The center verses of the book deal with your walk. At the heart of the book of the rapture is an admonition about how you're supposed to live tomorrow. Because if the coming of Christ isn't affecting what you do tomorrow, you're spitting in the wind. If you know the Lord is coming back, your life should show what you know. You should live in light of what you know. Verse 3, For this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that you should abstain from fornication. Number one, we should be sanctifying our, sanctifying ourselves. Taking out the garbage. That's what sanctifying is. Taking out the garbage. Why? Because daddy's coming home clean up the house daddy's coming home party's over daddy's coming home I better tidy up because daddy's coming home he doesn't want to find things a mess number two verse four that every one of you should know how to possess his vessel take a look at your hands take a look at your face look at your feet look at yourself on your phone and just flash the camera the other way and stare at yourself you know what that is that's your vessel he says you need to live in your vessel the right way you know why? Because we should be respecting God's vessel because God bought this vessel with his blood. Amen. The car is only on lease. You're turning it into the master one day and he's going to check the mileage and all the dings and the dents and all the wear and tear you put on it. The Bible says everyone should know everything will be manifest, what was done in his body, whether it be good or bad at the judgment seat of Christ. Hey, respect the vessel. I don't mean... Diet and exercise, I mean, what are you touching? What are you looking at? Where are you going? What are you saying? What are you thinking? What are you feeling? What are you joining to? What are you not joining to? You know why? Because it's God's vessel. Why would you reach your hand for something that God said not to reach for? It's his hand. Why would you put your lips to somebody or something that God said, don't go anywhere near? It's his body, right? It belongs to him. So you should check in with him and find out what he wants because it's only a lease. You're going to turn it in one day and God's going to see what you did with it like they do when you turn in your lease, right? Look at verse number five. It's a tough book. Not in the lust of concupiscence. You know what concupiscence is? Unchecked lust. Not in the lust of concupiscence. Even as the Gentiles which know not God. You know what he's saying there? We should be controlling ourselves. You know what Philippians says? The Lord is at hand. Let your moderation be known unto all men. The Lord is at hand. One of the fruit of the Spirit is temperance, that you control yourself, that you're not an animal like the Gentiles. They're animals. They're running around, doing whatever they want, following their urges like a bunch of dogs. You're not supposed to be like that. You should have some strength from the Holy Spirit to say, whoa, I can control myself. A little bit. Verse number six, then we're almost done. Six, that no man go beyond and defraud his brother in any manner because that the Lord is the avenger of all such as we also have forewarned you and testified. You know what we should also be doing? We should be loving each other. I said at the beginning, the word brethren appears 16 times. Hey, it's a lot about loving each other and helping each other and blessing each other. We should be loving each other to death, man. We're Christ's body. How can you love Christ and not love his body? How can you honor Christ and not be gracious to his body? We are the members of his body, of his flesh and of his bones. And then lastly, verse 7, For God hath not called us unto uncleanness, but unto holiness. He's saying we should just be flat out holy. If a holy God is coming to take you to a holy place, be holy, for I am holy. And that's how we should walk in light of his coming. That's the third big idea. May God help us to take this second coming of Christ, let it be a comfort, but let it be a challenge to live your life in a way befitting of what you profess to know. Let's have a word of prayer.